Peace be with you. Well, as you uh, just heard the reading of God's word, I do want to give you an opportunity if you need to put up one finger and take a child to child care uh, to do that as we have some uh, PG-12 uh, things happening. <laughs> well, what in the world do we do with a text like that? What's happening here? I mean, this is Advent. This is the epiphany. This is all that's supposed to be about the coming of Jesus. And by the way, what in the world is the name of this series? The Mothers of Jesus. Why would we name it that? Well, this series is uh, pointing towards the coming of Jesus, pointing towards Advent. And I believe we have a lot of great nuggets in store as we uh, go through uh, of this series. But it's kind of based off the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew chapter 1, the genesis of, of Jesus, so to speak. And in Matthew's gospel, um, he opens it up in a very uh, sophisticated and interesting way. You may not think that when you think about genealogies and you just see all these names mentioned, but, but to the careful reader and the person who takes time to see uh, what he is doing and how he's arguing, it's, it's quite fascinating. We read these words in Matthew's gospel, starting at verse 3, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Verse 5, Salmon the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Verse 6, and Jesse, the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. So just right there, we see four women who are mentioned in Matthew's gospel, and each of them says, the mother was. So that's where we get the title, the mothers of Jesus. We're looking at the great, 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 great grandmothers of Jesus. And then we go to verse 16, it says, Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. So for the next five weeks, we are going to dive into these women's stories. We're going to look at how they are a part of Jesus' lineage. And even when we look at the Gospel of Matthew and Matthew chapter 1, we want to stand back and be amazed at a few things. Number one, at the fact that women are mentioned in this genealogy. When we look at biblical genealogies throughout the Bible, one thing we see that often women are missing. Um, it is not common to see a woman mentioned in a biblical genealogy. And this is noteworthy. This is the Holy Spirit I'm showing that women are to be honored and that these women's stories are important. The second we see Jesus' family lineage is messed up uh, just like you and mine. Uh, when you read these stories and if you remember the stories and the names that are here, you see a complicated genealogy. You see a family tree that is riddled with scandal and pain and brokenness. And what we conclude from that is this. The people that Jesus is from are the very people that Jesus came for. The people that Jesus is from is the very people that Jesus came for. And it also should to bring peace to our hearts to know that Jesus' family was messy and messed up just like you and mine. There's no shame. There's nothing to hide. Families are made of people, and people are sinners. And sinners sin. The third, this genealogy reminds us that God's kingdom is an upside-down kingdom. You would expect, when looking at these genealogies, to see names like Sarah and Rachel and 
and others who are uh, from Jesus' lineage, from Israel's lineage, who are more respectable, Rebecca and, and Leah. But instead, we have women whose lives were, can be marked by chaos and scandal. Women like Tamar and Rahab and Ruth and Bathsheba. Women who are Gentiles and, 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 and refugees and, and marked by pain. Which reminds us that the people that God honors in the kingdom, that the people who, who, who God uh, puts forth for us are not the people that we would necessarily think that God is for the forgotten, the broken, the abused, the accused, the misused. And then fourth, which is a major thing that we'll see every week and continue to emphasize is this. Forgiveness is a huge deal. It's a big deal. But your story and my story as Christians, it doesn't doesn't end with God just forgiving us. Our stories is a story of redemption, but it's also a story of new life. God is in the business of of changing our hearts and changing our stories and, and redeeming our hearts and redeeming our stories. Salvation is not just about forgiveness. Salvation is also about us being born again and giving a new life. And that is so important for us to remember this Advent. That is so important to remember that Jesus did not come for those who are well, but those who are sick. And he is in the business of using weak people, crooked sticks for his glory. So when we look at this text, we want to look at a, a couple things as we see the story of Tamar. The first, we want to see that Judah and his sons, they committed injustice against Tamar in Genesis chapter 36. Sorry, 37, we see uh, that this story and the stories uh, that are, are, are forthcoming in Genesis are really an account of Jacob's family line. And then the author goes on and he tells a story about Joseph, who was sold into slavery by his brothers. His brothers were going to murder him. They were going to murder him. They were about to take him out. And then Judah, um, Tamar's father-in-law, uh, steps up and says, let's not kill Joseph. Let's make some money off of them. And so they sell their youngest brother into slavery because they're jealous of him and the way that their father showed partiality towards him. So then we get to chapter 38. And if your Bible's like mine, there's a heading over it that says Judah and Tamar. And it may sound weird because Judah is her father-in-law, but that's exactly what this story is is about. Judah already has a a cloud of, of mystery over him. Uh, Judah already has uh, some issues with immorality as he has uh, worked with his brothers and sold his younger brother into slavery. And we read that that Judah then marries a Canaanite woman. And and with this Canaanite woman, he has three children. And his first child's name is Er. And Er becomes the husband of Tamar, the husband of of Tamar. But the text tells us something about Er that is quite troubling. It says that he is wicked in the Lord's sight. His name means protector, but yet we can deduce that he was not protecting people. Uh, The Bible says that he is wicked, so the Lord put him to death. Now remember, Tamar is his wife, and if this man is wicked, we can uh, probably infer that he wasn't too good to her. We could probably infer that he was harsh and perhaps that he even abused her. But the Bible kills him because of his wickedness. God takes him out 
which leaves Tamar a widow, and not just a widow, but a childless widow. So the text says that Judah then gives Tamar his next son named Onan. And to us in our culture, that just sounds weird. Like her brother dies, and then the father says, well, now you can be married to his other brother. But actually, uh, this was a, the way and a system that was set up back in, in biblical days to protect women because women, if they had no husband and if they had no child, they were very vulnerable because men were the ones who worked in society. And a woman with no husband and no child was, very, was susceptible to becoming a prostitute because she had no other way to provide for herself. So there's a system called the, the Levite uh, system, which simply means the brother system, that was set up to protect women where they had a, had a covering. But the text tells us something about Onan. Onan used Tamar. And you can read more about it here in this passage. Uh, I would read it, but uh, I don't want to blush and feel awkward at this moment. <laughs> in verse 9, we see that, that Onan uh, uh, has, does the marriage act with Tamar, Um, But he does not allow them, uh, put himself in a position where she would have a son. And the reason he did this is more than likely financial. If she doesn't have a son, that means everything that her brother has is now his. He grows in wealth. And while she is, is left there without honor, a woman back then who did not have kids Um, They didn't have the technology today to understand barrenness was a woman who was seen as cursed by the gods. So he abdicates his responsibility and she is cursed. But God is not pleased with Onan. And the Bible says that God, just like he killed Er, kills Onan because Onan is wicked. He is abusing and assaulting this woman. And what's crazy is she can't say anything about it. If she comes up and says to Judah, look at what's being done to me, she could lose her place in her family. She could be killed. She could be blacklisted and black sheep. And so she's probably in fear, just taking what is being given to her. And now she's twice a widow with zero kids. There's good news, right? Judah has one more son. And perhaps there's a third shot for her. But the text says, But Judah is looking at her, and he doesn't want to give her his son. And even tells us his thoughts. He's thinking, the same thing that happened to my first two sons with her may happen once again. He says in verse 11, he may die too, just like his brother. So what does he do? He tells her to go back home to your father's house, and we'll call you when we need you. We'll call you when he's old enough to marry But then the Bible tells us that a long period of time goes by. Judah pretty much leaves Tamar with her father's home. She's blacklisted. She's a black sheep. Every day she is wearing widow's clothes. Literally, uh, widows will wear widow's clothes. A morning, clothes of mourning, which will mark to everyone who's around that her husband has died. Do you see this woman? No, like, like, do you see this woman? Do you see this woman who has been abandoned, a young teenage girl who already has had two husbands that has died and who's now in her father's uh, house waiting on her father-in-law to redeem her? 
Do you see this woman who was probably in abusive marriages? Do you see this woman who has been sexually assaulted? Do you see this woman who is voiceless? Do you see this woman who is desperate? Do you see this woman who has given up a lot to become a part of this lineage, given up her Canaanite roots, and who is now engrafted into this family and who feels lost and confused? Do you feel her pain, Tamar? Do you see her? The Bible says Tamar comes up with a plan, and this plan is going to expose Judah's hypocrisy. Her plan is to go on the side of the road as he's making a, a trip to, uh, to see a friend and to shear some sheep, and she figures if I dress as a prostitute, um, we can sleep together, do the marriage act together. Perhaps I can get pregnant and be redeemed in his family and be restored to honor. And that's what she does. Um, not long ago, earlier in the year, uh, the elders and I, we had a meeting. It ended really late at night, like 11 p.m. I'm driving here in Shelby Park, waiting to get on uh, to the highway. And there's a, a young lady who is uh, dressed uh, very inappropriately. And then I see a sports car drive up beside her with an older man in the vehicle. And she opens the door and gets in. And I knew what was happening. I knew what was going on. He was uh, uh, listening, uh, uh, listening to her for, for, for sex. And that's essentially what's going to happen on this road. Judah, one of the patriarchs of Israel, wife has died. He's on his way for this trip. Tamar takes off her widow's clothes, puts on the clothes of a prostitute, and she uh, makes a proposition to him which raises the question, how does she know that he would fall for that? Perhaps his reputation wasn't the best reputation. Perhaps she just suspected that he would be grieving the loss of his long-time wife, but whatever the case, she was confident that he would give in to temptation, and he does. Now, here's what her plan hinges on. Her plan hinges on her um, sleeping with him and getting pregnant. But if she gets pregnant and there's no way to prove that Judah is the father, she can end up dead and stoned. So what she does is she figures out a way in which she can prove that he's the father, right? She goes to the, uh, what is it, the, the Maurice show, whatever it is. You are not the father. It just annoys me. Please don't watch that show. We're not legalistic here, but don't watch that show. You have freedom in the Lord, but don't watch that show. All things are profitable, not all things are permissible. Don't watch that show. It's really, like, just joking, partially. It annoys me. You can watch if you like. All right, let me stay focused. All right. So it, 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 she figures out a way in which she can take um, his, his uh, 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 essentially a signet ring and his staff from him, which is like getting a license and a social security card, because he doesn't have anything to pay her with. And he promises to give her a goat. Hey, this is back in the day, all right? Um, so she takes his license, his social security card, and she goes back home. Uh, they do the marriage act, even though they're not married. Time comes back for him to pay her uh, what is owed her, but no one can find her, um, to which he's embarrassed and he is asking around. He's like, let's stop asking around about this woman because if someone finds out what happened, I'll be the laughing stock of our community. 
And then three months later, we read these words in verse 24. Your daughter-in-law Tamar is guilty of prostitution, and as a result, she is now pregnant. Look at Judah's response. Judah said, bring her out and have her burned to death. He finds out that she's, she's pregnant, and he wants to burn her at the stake. Judah is ready and willing to condemn her on something that he's not willing to condemn himself on. Look at the double standard. Then the text says that she works her plan masterfully. She gives her plan to one of Judah's servants. The servant takes it back to him and said, uh, she said, whoever's this belonged to, this is who I slept with. And so the servant opens up his purse and hands these items, <laughs> hands these items to him. And he gets these items and he sees his license and his social security card. And he says, how does she have my... Oh, and he sees what has happened. And notice his response here. Notice his response, verse 26. She is more righteous than I, since I wouldn't give her to my son, Sheila. And he did not sleep with her again. And the Bible says that she goes on to have twins. Now, we know that every time someone uh, partakes in the the marriage act, um, that It doesn't mean that they're going to be pregnant. God is ultimately the one who gives life. So God gave this woman life, and in the midst of her scandalous actions, she is redeemed. She is restored to honor. She is, once again, a part of this family. What do we do with a text like this? Well, there's three things, three ways I want to apply this text to us as a church that we need to see. The first is this. We need to trust that God works his will amidst whispers of scandal. We need to trust that God works his will against, in the midst of, of whispers of scandal, right? Uh, this story is a hard story. It's not a sitcom where a hilarious plot um, uh, takes place and the hero or heroine of this plot um, is, is, is noticed and, and loved and the credits roll. No, Tamar has lived a a difficult life where there's danger and rejection and darkness. God blesses a woman who works things out in her own strength and who is willing to compromise in order uh, to uh, 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 the means for the end. And if we don't read the Bible carefully and rightfully, we can take the wrong application away. We can say, hey, when things aren't going my way, God is okay with me uh, breaking his law and not being obedient as long as the end result is what I wanted. And that's the wrong way to read the word of God. What Tamar did was deceptive. What Tamar did was wrong. What Tamar did in, in, in one sense was her not trusting God. In another sense, it was her trusting God that through one act this would happen, but it is scandalous and it is wrong. This story is a messy story, and it's important that we know this story is not a story about what a person can do, but what God can do through imperfect people. The story is not about what a person can do, but what God can do through imperfect people. And guess what? That's the storyline of the Bible. Anyone whom the Bible deals in great detail with is a complex and broken person. Come here, Adam. Adam, complex and broken. Come here, Abraham. Abraham, complex and broken. Come here, Moses. Moses, complex and broken. Come here, David. David, complex and broken. Come here, Eve. Eve, complex and broken. 
Come here, Sarah. Complex and broken. Every single person in the Bible is complex and broken, yet God uses crooked sticks to draw straight lines. God's will would not be thwarted because of Tamar's mess, and God's will would not be thwarted because of our mess. Remember, God has given a promise to Abraham that through his seeds, the nations would be blessed and the seed would be as numerous as the stars. If, if Judah does not conceive, if, if Israel's sons are not bearing children, then that, that promise does not come to pass. But God brings that, common, that promise to pass even in the midst of messiness and messy people, even in the midst of oppression, even in the midst of abandonment. God God is faithful, and here's where it comes home. God is faithful in your life. You're messed up. But the good news is you can't spell Messiah without spelling mess. God has sent his Messiah into the world. God has sent his son into the world, and his and our stuff, our junk, our mess, does not thwart his plan to bring salvation to the nations. The mess of the church does not thwart his plan to bring salvation to every ethnic people and every tribe and every tongue. That's good news that God has a perfect batting average with a poor bat. The good news is, Romans 8, 28, that God works all things together for the good of those who love the Lord and who are called according to his purpose. And this may sound scandalous. You may want to write a blog post about me when I say this, but here is the truth. God works all things together for the good. That all includes your sin. You're looking at yourself, you're saying, Pastor Jamal, if you only knew my struggles, my thorn in the flesh, if you, you only knew my thoughts, there's no way that God can use me and bring glory uh, to himself through me. There's no way that I can be salt and light. You don't understand my family's lineage. You don't understand my insecurities. You don't understand how hard it is for me to just live my life in Christ. And you say, I, I'm worthless. I'm nothing. God said, I use all things, even your sin. For your good and my glory. It doesn't mean that you don't pursue Christ. No, you pursue Christ because you kill sin or sin will be killing you. So you pursue it through the spirit. You get accountability. You cry out to the Lord. You continue to put one foot in front of the other. But understand that God has already calculated your complexity and your mess into his divine and sovereign will. And yet he still says that you are his workmanship, that you are his poema created in Christ Jesus for good works. It all doesn't mean it excuses your sin, but it means that he uses you in spite of. Second, in this text, we see that we need to trust that God is tenaciously for vulnerable women, and God's people must be too. God is tenaciously for vulnerable women. That's what we see in this text, that Tamar is a vulnerable woman, that justice has escaped her. But the biblical storyline tells us that God sees people whom we often as a church don't see. Deuteronomy 10, 18, he executes justice for the orphan and the widow and shows his love for the alien by giving him food and clothing. Psalm 10, 14, you have seen it for you have beheld mischief and vexation to take it into your hand. The unfortunate commits himself to you. You have been the helper of the orphan. 
Psalm 69, 5, Father to the fatherless, defender of widows. This is God whose dwelling is holy. Isaiah 10, 1 through 2, woe to those who make unjust laws, to those who issue oppressive decrees, to deprive the poor of their rights and withhold justice from the oppressed of my people, making widows their prey and robbing their fatherless. God defends the vulnerable and weak. God is not a misogynist. God does not say, see women as those who are not created in his image and those who are not co-heirs. No, women are created in the Imago Dei, the image of God. Women are co-heirs. And God tells us as, as men to cherish and to protect and to serve women to honor women. That's what the genealogy teaches. That's what Jesus' life teaches. And he tells us to to protect them, and and especially vulnerable women, especially broken women, especially widowed women, especially poor women. He says, notice them. And in a world in which women are often blamed and punished when something goes wrong and men get a slap in the hand, the Bible says that men, the church should not be that way. In a world where women face death sentences through honor killings, while, while the men who committed adultery get away, men, the Bible says that shouldn't be the case. In a world where women are kept silent from, and from voting and denied access to education, equal pay, even though they do the same work as men, church, that should not be the case. And many of the women in our communities are forgotten and abused and overlooked. And God's people, the church should be a place that is countercultural, a church where, where people look into and say, wow, both the men and the women here are, are honored. And those women who, who don't have a, a covering, who aren't married, they are honored, they are loved, they have extra protection, they have brothers who, who treat them well, who don't look at them up and down as a piece of meat, but who see them created in the image of God, who don't see them as sexual objects, but see them as servants of the Most High, a daughter of the King. That's what Jesus did. Jesus, despite the culture, went counterculture, and he sat at the well with a woman who had five husbands and affirmed her dignity and preached the good news to her. That's what Jesus did when a woman was caught in adultery. He and her accused were all around her, ready to throw stones. He wrote in the sand and covered her with his love and said, go and sin no more. That's what Jesus did as he had many sisters and and women who supported his ministry and gave to his ministry. He he honored them as disciples. That's what Jesus did when Mary and Martha lost their brother. He stepped into the complexity of their world. He spent time with them and he wept with them without making it weird. Jesus, as one person wrote this week on, on Twitter, used his power not to manipulate and exploit, but to love and to serve. And the question is today, will we love and to serve those who are broken in our communities? Will we respond like Jesus or will we respond like Judah? Will we say to the Tamars that come into this church broken and abandoned and abused, will we say to them, go over here? 
Put on some clothes. Change the way you act. This is not a place for you. Justice will come for you one day. Or will we acknowledge their presence? Step into the complexity of their world. Help nudge them out of poverty. Learn their story and just love them as one who is created in the image of God, knowing that we are equally complex. And if it was not for the grace of God, where would we be? Verse 26 fascinated me this week, and I'm going to have to rush to a close. Verse 26. Look at Judah's response. Judah's recognized them and says, she is more righteous than I, since I wouldn't give her to my son. She is more righteous than I. That caught my attention. And again, this may upset you this week. Just write a blog about me. That'll solve all your problems. But so often in the Christian church, People become self-righteous and they look at people who are broken and trapped in poverty and sexual sin. And we say some really in the form things and we treat those people as if they're less than. If they would just, do they know how babies are made? Well, they're just a welfare queen. And everything becomes about sexual sin. That's the worst thing you can do is sexual. What's Judah's response? Judah says, she is more righteous than I. He acknowledges her brokenness and that she is not perfect. More righteous than I, it implies that she's not perfect. She sinned. What she did was wrong. But notice what he says. More righteous than I. In other words, he's saying, I am doubly wrong. I am the person who wielded power in this relationship. I'm the person who was given a responsibility by by this this law to protect her and to keep her. He says, I'm doubly wrong. And I pray that we'll be a church that aren't run by by politics and and that don't look at people from a distance and try to sum up their whole life from a distance. I pray that we'll be a church that understands that some people, Some of the most vulnerable people in our society feel that they are trapped. Yes, they are responsible for their sin. And if they do not know Jesus, they will die and go to hell. But they feel that they are trapped. They have been born into poverty. Their family is filled with brokenness. Some of the things that we take for granted that we know has not been passed down by generations. And in the sight of God, I believe the Lord was speaking through Judah, a truth that we all should hear today. It is those who are in society who have the power to make a difference, who have, a power, who have the opportunity to go and come alongside these women, but who turn their face, who is doubly wrong. And I pray that we'll get to the place where we are passionate to see justice take place, and we as a church, where we will speak up for the nameless, where we'll speak up for those who do not have access to education, where we will speak up for situations like Flint, where people in America don't have good water, where we will speak up for more than just those who are committing abortion, but we will speak up for the ills that plague so many, that leave so many broken and hungry. Because Jesus will. And we'll be balanced. And we'll be broken like Judah. 
you know, perhaps you're Tamar today. Perhaps you feel abandoned, abused, and accused. Perhaps you're the black sheep of your family. Perhaps you you go to, to family events like Thanksgiving and Christmas and you look around and you feel like no one really cares about you, like you didn't fulfill your, your parents' aspirations and dreams, but your brothers, your sisters, and your cousins did. Here's my word to you. God sees you. God knows you. God is writing your story. And God plays the long game. You may feel like your life is not making sense, but God is writing a story for you, and he is working in you if you are submitting your life to Jesus Christ. And he is doing things through you and in you and for you that you can't see. And maybe one day, like Tamar, when you get to heaven, you'll see his story. You'll see the impact that he allowed you to make. And you'll hear him say, faithful servant, well done. Trust that the Lord is working. Perhaps you have a child that's wayward. Perhaps your child has not gone the way that you think they should go and they have not accepted Jesus Christ. I want to encourage you that there is no lost causes in Christ. That God is able to redeem and to save that child. And I want to encourage you, mother, I want to encourage you, grandmother, to keep on praying. To keep on coming alongside them and gently telling them about your Savior. To keep on looking to the hills from where comes your help. Every Sunday when we gather together as the people of God, we gather together to remember Jesus Christ and his story. To remember though he was sinless and perfect in every way that he was abandoned outside of the city gates and scorned and forgotten that injustice was done to him. That he allowed God's wrath to be poured on himself so that God's wrath would not be poured on you and me. And every Sunday we take a meal called communion to remind us not just of the forgiveness that we receive from Christ, but the the new heart that we receive and a new story that God loves us and he has not forgotten about us and that there is proof that over 2,000 years ago he allowed his son's body to be broken for you and blood to be shed for you. And that if he who gave his own son for you, what else will he not give you, dear Christian? On the night when Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and broke it. He said, this is my body broken for you. In the same way, he took a cup and said, this cup is a new covenant of my blood shed for you. As often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he returns. Here at Sojourn, we take a piece of bread, we dip it in wine or juice. The wine is marked by twine, whatever your conscience permits. And every week we get to remind ourselves that we who were once homeless, we who was once following the prince of darkness, have now received a home in the family of God, and that God is good and he loves us and he is near. If you're not a Christian, we're going to ask you not to partake in this this meal, but rather we want you to take Christ. We want you to become a part of his family by placing your faith and trust in Jesus, by believing that God through him will forgive you of all of your sins, that you will receive a new record, Christ's record. That record cannot be taken away from you no matter what you do because salvation is not based upon your righteousness. It's based upon his. 
I want you to believe that God cares for you, that perhaps you've been assaulted, perhaps you've been abandoned, perhaps your heart is bitter. I want you to believe that God can take your story and make a masterpiece of it and use your story to set other people free. We want you to come to Jesus. Let's pray.